Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 136 of X-Labs, the uh, late-night edition here. And uh, if I sound any more echoey than uh, usual, it's because I'm currently recording in an empty room. (laughs) Today is the first recording from the new abode, the new uh, palatial Chris state. And, uh, well, I'm at a folding table with a folding chair, got my microphone and my laptop, and... uh, that's about all there is in this room, so if I'm echoey, I apologize, and uh, this will hopefully be a short-lived um, echoey disaster. But uh, let's get into today's book here. Uh, as we discussed last episode, it took me many, many miles to find the issue we're going to discuss today, and that is Juggernaut, Volume 3, Number 3. Now, the set of January 2021 cover date, stories called Stuck in the Past, written by Fabian Nicieza with art by Ron Garney. Colors Matt Miller, letters VCs Joe Sabino, edits Robinson White, Bisa Sabalski. Cover price $3.99, went on sale November 18th of 2020, so right toward the tail end of our X of Tens uh, jaunt, I believe this one came out. I think X of Tens ended just a week after this came out. Alrighty, let's get into it. We open with another purpley info page, though this one is actually orange in font. And our comics content begins with our titular hero duking it out with Spider-Man. Now, this isn't actually happening in real time. This is actually a callback to the two-part Nothing Can Stop the Juggernaut story that appeared in Amazing Spider-Man issues 229 and 230. Now, those are from way back in the long ago, June and July 1982, respectively, in which the only way Spidey was able to stop the juggernaut was to sink him in a pool of just-poured concrete at, an, at a construction site. And before we go on, that is a, a great little story, and even though I've just spoiled the entire thing for you, I would still recommend going to uh, give it a look if you're so inclined. It's, it's really a lot of fun. Now, why is this relevant? Well, if you recall, last issue ended with the Juggernaut getting sued by a construction company. Well, this was that construction company. I figure it's weird that they'd wait so long to serve papers, but what are you going to do? Maybe they're just taking advantage of the fact that Juggernaut's uh, more of a sort of kind of good guy at the moment, right? Anyway, we're currently in court, and this Spidey v. Juggernaut image is simply a piece of evidence. Uh, A photo snapped by one Peter Parker, of course. Now, the lawyer's testimony gets a little bit wonky and a little bit contradictory of the established ASM two-parter. You see, he's claiming that the fight caused the cement to be poured, or released. 
when the original story actually had the cement already poured and Juggernaut was simply lured into it and then he sunk, right? Now, even though this is contradictory, I can still, I guess, appreciate it for what it is. Uh, now, let's jump back to last issue for a minute. If you recall, uh, the Hulk called Kane out for being a hypocrite when it came to taking the blame for his actions and behavior. And the comparison there was the Hulk was less responsible for what he did because, I mean, he was a pea-brained force of nature, right? Whereas, conversely, Kane Marco was knowingly causing all sorts of havoc and just being an all-around jerk. Now, here, at the court, we've got Kane being confronted with literal evidence of his past misdeeds. And to make that point even finer, the lawyer makes sure to say that Kane Marco was not being mind-controlled and his actions and choices were his own at the time of the uh, event. Now, Kane's lawyer, Bernie Rosenthal, attempts to have the whole thing tossed out, claiming that the entire hullabaloo was Spider-Man's fault. And, well, you know, there was uh, plenty of blame to go around there. Uh, it is worth noting, I guess, that D-Cell is in the peanut gallery live-streaming and narrating the entire trial, because of course she is. Suddenly, there's an earthquake in New York City? Huh. Well, we'll come back to that in a bit, because first... Flashback land. We got Kane Marco in North Korea. There's a few months ago where he's being sherpered around a snowy mountain path. He and his guide finally arrive at their destination, which is the Forge of Sidorak. So I guess he didn't get the new armor in Budapest then. That was just a, uh, I don't know, a sculpture of some sort. Anyway, our man heads inside where he meets with a blacksmith. And this smith is not happy to see Kane. You see, the smith believes he ought to be the true host of Sidorak. And so, he begins swiping in Kane's direction with his sledgehammer, just like you do. Back to the present, and the courthouse is suddenly flooded with sand. Which, seeing as though we're sort of kind of dealing with the fallout of a Spider-Man story from like 40 years ago, I assumed that the big reveal here would be that Juggernaut would have to fight the Sandman. That's not the direction we're headed, however. Uh, it's actually going to be the Juggernaut versus Quicksand. Who? Yeah, who indeed. Now, Quicksand is here, not so much to fight Juggernaut, but to abduct D-Cell. And so, we get several pages of fighting, while D-Cell seems more interested in continuing her livestream. It's worth noting that Quicksand refers to D-Cell as the Mutant Child. Which our gal ain't really keen to hearing. Remember, she's totally not a mutant. And she totally wouldn't lie to us, right? Now, she, uh, D-Cell, is flanked by a pair of damage control agents who confirm that, uh, yeah, D-Cell is a mutant. But they don't really press the issue because they're busy scanning the baddie. They're eventually able to deduce that Quicksand is being mind-controlled. And they shout to Kane that... Uh, the best way to defeat her would be to remove her head. Which, I mean, wouldn't that defeat her in any case? I mean, Mind-controlled or not, you take something's head off, it's probably, probably going to be worse for the wear, right? Oh well. Anyway, Juggernaut then tosses a large chunk of debris right at Quicksand's neck, which, well, yeah, decapitates her. D-Cell is then called in to use her totally not-mutant powers to slow down the sand particles in Quicksand's dome in order to keep it from reattaching to its body. From here, back to Flashback Land, and Kane and the Smith fight. 
Well, actually, the Smith fights, Kane just evades the hammer shots. Now, one of those hammer shots hits a chain which releases the crimson bands of Sidorak all over our hero. We see him bathed in the stuff, and finally, back to being the or a unstoppable juggernaut. We hop back to the present where Kane and his lawyer settle up with the construction company. By uh, replacing the lost product in the cement from 40 years ago by handing over a whole bunch of sand from Quicksand's body? The hell? All right. Whatever the case, it seems to have done the trick. Uh, We have to assume that the plucky construction company who is after $25 million is suddenly cool with being handed a few ton of sand. Because sand is uh, so much harder to come by than cash. All right, I'm, j- I'm going to stop thinking about this too hard because it, it really doesn't make any sense here. Um, now we wrap up the issue with the revelation that Quicksand was, in fact, being mind-controlled and being mind-controlled by Arnim Zola, the Nazi scientist who was apparently experimenting on superhuman prisoners. And that's where we leave it. Uh, next episode, we will be back on the beaten path. We're going to kick off the Reign of X. With Hellions number seven. Really looking forward to that. I hope you are as well. But let's talk about the Juggernaut first. Let's talk about Juggernaut number three, which, you know, it's it's another fun issue. It flew by, but didn't really feel all that decompressed. It was just a, a really good read, a satisfying read. Um, really enjoyed my time with it. Uh, now, one of the things I said when we started looking at this Juggernaut mini was uh, that the story isn't trying to be anything that it's not. And I still believe that. Uh, This is a comic book that presents itself as a comic book. Go figure, right? This isn't self-important. It's not up its own ass with high-concept nonsense. This is a straightforward superhero comic book, and boy, is that refreshing to see. Um, Now that having been said, while this is a really fun issue, it really doesn't give us a whole heck of a lot to talk about, does it? Um, I mean, we could talk about... Uh, We're not going to concern ourselves with actual legalities, right? Because A, I'm sorely unqualified to do so, and B, to do so would probably hurt our enjoyment of the story. I mean, statutes of limitations have got to be a thing, right? Uh, Amazing Spider-Man 229-230 was nearly 40 years ago real-time, and while under Marvel's sliding timescale, that may have been anywhere from six months ago to 600 years ago. So it's Kind of hard for us to reconcile that in our heads, so we will just, you know, allow it. We could talk about the settlement, but that makes no sense, right? Um, I feel like uh, we were painted into a corner with the lawsuit and the trial, so we got to figure out a way out of this, right? So we'll take any vine we can grab before we sink into uh, legal and uh, literal quicksand. <laughs> um And, you know, speaking of quicksand, um, here's a story I never thought I'd tell. I never thought I'd have to tell it. Uh, It's a weird um, Chris's on Infinite Earth story. Uh, Not too long ago, probably, boy, within the past three months or so, I noticed a spike in my readership over Chris's on Infinite Earths, and it was all directed to a particular issue with a flash from... Somewhere in the Bronze Age, um, mid-70s, I think. An old post. An old post has probably been there for three or four years. Uh, never really got any kind of uh, 
traffic, you know, just nothing out of the ordinary, you know, got the standard amount of hits as as a blog post of mine would usually get. Suddenly, overnight, I was getting thousands of hits on this one post, which... If you if you ever got into blogging or podcasting, any kind of content creation for the internet, and you see a huge spike in your audience, your first thought might be like, "Oh, okay, a bot. You know, a bot found me, and uh, there's you know seven billion computers just all like fishing the site or whatever." But and then that that has happened before, of course. I mean, that's just something that does happen. Here, though. There was a referral link, and uh, here's here's a a pro tip. Um, If you do maintain a blog or a uh, website or a podcast, anything that you might be able to find out where your hits come from, don't click on the link, (laughs) the referring link here. No matter how benign or family-friendly it looks, you just never know what you're going to find here because um, now this issue of the Flash that was uh, so popular all of a sudden featured the Flash Barry Allen um, sinking in quicksand, and uh, that was why people were reading it because the referral site was a fetish site for quicksand. I didn't realize that was a thing, but in fact, it was or is. And um, and that's not the that's not the only uh, group that found my website. But maybe we'll save that discussion for another day. But uh, the whole time we're talking about quicksand in this juggernaut issue, all I'm thinking about is Barry Allen sinking in the uh, in the quicksand, and I'm wondering if uh, this episode might get a spike in listenership as a result of uh, mentioning quicksand in the. Uh, in the episode description, which I guess I'm going to have to now just to test this theory out. But, uh, yeah, that was a thing. Um, overall, I mean, not a whole heck of, heck of a lot more to say. We did find out how Kane got the new armor, which was really just a, uh, a means to an end, right? It wasn't, it wasn't overly interesting, but it was something that had to happen, and it happened in, in fine enough a way. I don't know if we'll be getting more flashbacks, uh, in the last two issues of this miniseries uh, we'll, we'll see if that happens And we'll discuss it when it does Or if it does But uh, overall, had a great time with this It was a lot of fun um, Ron Garney still killing it here in the art uh, It's a, Like I said uh, both times we talked about this before uh, It's a different style for Garney But it really, really works And it suits the tone of the story And Nisi Asa very, very seldom disappoints So Definitely a fun book, a book I would recommend checking out if you are uh, if you're enjoying this coverage, which I hope that you are. But uh, that will do it for our discussion of uh, Juggernaut number three and uh, quicksand fetishes, I guess. Uh, let's hop into the mailbag here. We've got a few uh, a few pieces of mail to get to. We're gonna kick it off with Evan, who's talking about X Men number fifteen here. The not the penultimate issue of uh, Exitens, the one before that, the pen penultimate. Um, now, Evan says, X-Men number 15, hey, look at the X-Men being the X-Men, fighting against not a world that hates and fears them, but a world that finds them politically inconvenient. The Quiet Council arguments make sense here, even if I'm fully behind Cyclops. Now, we've talked about this. X-Men number 15 was where the uh, the shoe dropped, the uh, the... the 
the sandal dropped. It wasn't a huge drop like we've seen before, but uh, something did drop. Uh, we found out that the X-Men were disbanded. Uh, of course, it would have been nicer to know that before this, but uh, eh, what are you going to do? Better late than never. And Evan is completely right here. The, uh, the Quiet Council arguments about uh, retiring the X-Men acting like a, like a nation... You know, uh, trying to make X-Men less the Kleenex to the tissue, right? Where people see mutant and they automatically say X-Men. They want to change that to when you see mutant, you think Krakoan because that is their nation. So it does totally make sense. And I'm with Evan as well with being completely behind Cyclops here because, I mean... I don't know if any of us would be reading this if it was about a mutant government from the get-go, right? I mean, that just doesn't sound like a very fun thing to read about. This is a superhero book at the end of the day, so uh, if the X-Men are going to be the X-Men again, that is perfectly fine by me. Evan continues, I still don't feel much about Apocalypse and his wife. Now, with that, I I agree and I kind of disagree in that, you know, with Apocalypse... I do care about Apocalypse. Um, I'm starting to have sympathy for Apocalypse, which is something that, uh, you know, we probably shouldn't have for a character like that. But they've done a good job of making me actually feel bad for Apocalypse. I still don't care about Genesis. Uh, Genesis feels more like a plot device than a character. And, I mean, that's a lot of our new characters from X of Tens here. They are just there to, to fill a role and to be... Just a round enough peg to fit through the round hole, you know? Uh, I feel like Genesis is something along those lines here. But Apocalypse himself, uh, it's hard not to feel bad for him. Everything that's gone down is, uh, you know, got to feel like a kick to the crotch, right? (laughs) Just uh, your family, your kids going against you. It's bad times for Apocalypse. And uh, his wife just constantly berating him for being weak when that's kind of been his gimmick since we were introduced to him back in the long ago here, just calling people out for not being fit when we find out that, uh, you know, it's like an abusive person growing up in an abusive household, right? You get abused, so you turn around and abuse others, and uh, Apocalypse being told that he's weak over and over again makes him tell everyone else they're weak and uh, try to test them, so... I'm I'm a fan of the Apocalypse Beats here. I, I'm kind of sorry to see him go, uh, but Genesis, eh, could take or leave. Evan continues, I got the feeling the whole not using the name X-Men thing was planned because it would explain why Kitty called her team the Marauders. Sure, it was heat of the moment, but why not just fall back on the X-Men? And it somewhat eases the, or explains the tension I felt with a lot of these characters not like, not acting like the X-Men I've known. They aren't the X-Men. Though not in the conspiratorial, they're all clones way that I thought, but I'm still holding on to that one as well. Now, it's funny that you call back to the Marauders here because I took Kitty pulling the name Marauders out because she couldn't use the X-Men because the X-Men were already in use. That's that's how I figured it. Like, I figured that they knew that the X-Men already had, uh, was, was already called. And so she was thinking about what, what else can I call it? What else can I call it? There's already an X-Men, there's already an X-Force. Uh, what is it going to be? What is it going to be? And uh, Marauders is just something that popped in her head here. But you might be right. You might be right on the money there that uh, the X-Men name was just off the table. And we just weren't privy to that conversation. So that that is a very good possibility. Evan continues. But why it was delivered this way, it felt like a big reveal that everyone knew but the reader. And I'm not so sure about that. 
It was an odd way to get there, but I feel like this offers a chance to define what the X-Men are in this new mutant society and why they're still needed. And yes, totally, totally, I'm with you there. I'm really looking forward to seeing how this uh, all shakes out here. Uh, I'm, I'm assuming that uh, Cyclops and Jean are going to be at the forefront of this team, and uh, I, I'm really interested to see how they how they go about it and uh, what kind of what kind of clashes they might have with the Quiet Council, what kind of interests might uh, kind of maybe different confrontations we're going to see. It's I think it could be very interesting. The delivery. This is the worst way to deliver this big reveal You know, uh, doing it in an info page Or at least confirming it in an info page We get the impression through the, the dialogue between Cyclops and the Council That the X-Men are, you know, not a thing anymore Because Cyclops has to remind them that, hey, you know what, we are still the X-Men So we have the idea that it's off the table But we don't get the confirmation until the info page And uh, that... I've had problems with that since the, since day one here. Um, I feel like, and I, and I still hold hold firm to the possibility or the probability that a lot of the people reading this either skim or skip many many info pages, especially when it's a two page spread of info pages. I think even the most diligent of X Men readers go into skim mode at that point, and uh, I probably would too if I wasn't you know covering these books. And there, there are still some that I do because some of them are very very boring. But uh, I'm, I'm very interested to see where this goes I do wish it was delivered a little bit better Maybe a little earlier Or a lot earlier Just so we know Just so we know why the characters were acting the way they were And I mean, we still have a lot of theories about why they act the way they do But at least this would have been one question We could have had answered there But uh, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts On, uh, the, on the pen penultimate issue of Exitens Which... Leads me to believe that uh, Marvel Unlimited has updated to the point where Exitens ended Because X-Men, Excalibur, and Destruction all hit the same day So hopefully they all hit Marvel Unlimited at the same time And uh, everyone who had to wait will hopefully have those in their hands right now So thank you so much, Evan I do look forward to hearing your thoughts on the rest of the uh, massive crossover event we got one more missive, and it's from our friend Mark, Green Lantern HG. It's about our Fantastic Four number 26 episode. He says, Great episodes, Chris. I found it a little easier to catch up on the weekends. I wanted to chime in because of Franklin Richards not being a mutant anymore. Was he really one? It was barely covered in FF. Keep up the great work. Well, thank you so much. And, uh, you know, the Franklin Richards thing, it always feels like... Uh, it always felt like they they wanted to kind of keep keep their feet in both camps with Franklin. Um, I'm sure the revelation that he was a mutant happened when the X Men were leading the sales charts, right? And you need to have a you need to have a finger in that pie, right? It's it's a way to connect a character in a book that isn't as popular with a group of books that are extremely popular. And I think it was like a safety thing. You know, they liked having it as a fallback. If something something they could have discussed or could have covered if they wanted to, it's just that they never really did anything about it. They, you know, they knew he was a mutant for the time that he was or that we assumed that he was, but uh, he never really did anything with it. He hung out with Generation X for a little bit when uh, during Heroes Reborn, but uh, I'm trying to think of any other time where... 
Outside of X-Men Fantastic Four and the other X-Men Fantastic Four That that one might have been called Fantastic Four and the X-Men Or Fantastic Four versus the X-Men One of those, whichever one But uh, those are the only times we really focused on Franklin being a mutant And if there's anyone out there reading Fantastic Four uh, regularly Please let me know if this has come up again In, uh, in any of the uh, subsequent issues here If he's dealing with it If... Uh, I don't know, maybe maybe he's, uh, his father's running tests on him to find some things out I mean, the whole reveal here We talked about how kind of just like sweeping it under the rug it was And how sort of kind of lazy it was um, It just felt like uh, it, him being a mutant was just something they didn't want to deal with anymore So they just wrote it out <laughs> They didn't try to explain anything away It was just like, yeah, just a, you, you never were Um and I mean, I still have questions about that because he was able to pass through the gates. Um, if you, even if he manifested his own X gene, which is what Professor X was kind of alluding to, doesn't that make him a mutant? If he has the X gene, he's a mutant, right? Even if he gave it to himself, he's still he still got the uh, the, the the necessary uh, gen- genetics to be considered a mutant. He passed through the gateways. Cerebro wasn't able to tell for his entire life until right now that he wasn't a mutant. I mean, that just seems so weird. So weird, and it feels like we only got half of an answer there. So, like I said, if anybody's still reading the Fantastic Four and we do get the other half of that answer, please let me know, and we will uh, we'll cover that on the show here. But thank you so much for checking in there. GLHG, it really, really means a lot to me. Um, and if anybody else would like to get a hold of me, uh, that would mean a lot to me as well. You could uh, find me on the Twitter machine at Ace Comics, or you could shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can find blog posts and show notes over at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com, also xlapsed.chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. You can chat with us about all sorts of stuff on Facebook. Our little group is 90s X Men. And you can hear everything from the Chris and Reggie Radio Channel Network thing at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. Well, that will do it for today, and that'll do it for our little little jaunt into the weeds post-X of Tens here. We, we talked about Gwenpool, we talked about the Fantastic Four, a couple issues of Juggernaut, and next time we kick off the Reign of X officially with Hellions. Really looking forward to that. I hope you are as well. I would like to thank you all so, so much for spending your time with me today. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya.